Sherlock here for Franklin Matters, Franklin Public Radio, anywhere on the internet, WFPR.FM, and in the local Franklin Mass FM radio dial 102.9, in the car, at home, and then on the internet, anywhere. We're here today for another Making Sense of Climate session with our My Climate Guide, Franklin activist Ted McIntyre. Ted, how are you doing this fine day? I'm doing fine, Steve. It's great to be with you again to uh, to connect up on this stuff. Yes, it's been a little bit. We've had a couple of interesting sessions in the past couple. They've been some of the better ones we've done. But I think, if anything, we're just getting better as we go. So I kind of like to leave, leave it that way. <laughs> yes, indeed. Why mess with success? Hey, absolutely. And there is, as usual, so much to cover. But... You have the audacity to send me a Jory Graham link on a, a poem that she wrote about climate. It was like, does he know I'm a poet? <laughs> I was going in the deep dive, following her, going back into the archives. And it's like, oh, I got to prepare. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, well, you're, you're, a, you're a poet. Uh, I am not. But I saw this article that uh, touched on poetry and how can I say? I, I I can't really connecting to the earth, the ephemeral nature of being alive and why things matter and seeing the light play the way it, it is and trying to capture that. Uh, the name of her book was the name of the volume of poetry is uh, two twenty forty, which is mm. basically like some sort of message in a bottle going forward to the year 2040, which right. if you're a climate person, starts to ring bells when you say 2030 2040 2050 you know something it's kind of the milestones there, right? that we've been walking towards yes absolutely yeah and I, you may have or may not have known for the listeners i do have a website called quiet poet for a reason i'm a poet i may of all the titles i've had i think i'm more comfortable with poet um from teaching to my journalism road uh words matter and I think, and there's been, certainly I'm not the first or the last person to say this, the poets and art in general have the role to bring the big issues to people in an understandable way, in a thinking way, in a thoughtful way, you know, not so much to slap them upside the head. Sometimes it takes that, but you know, to to create the aha moment, if possible, to create the, what was that? <laughs> really? So, yeah, I'll, that is certainly the role. I've been playing it, you know, more explicitly in the journalism stuff that I do. Um, but I'll be audacious and share a poem that I wrote recently, which gives us a nice segue to some of our other conversation around this one. So. This is titled This Branch. Um, it's one of my unique poetry styles, uh, unique to the extent that back upon a time, and I won't develop too much on it, but you can go and Quiet Poet and find the story of Shirku, which is my form of haiku. Um, I also had worked with a bunch of uh, Ghazal. It's an, uh, more of an Eastern, Middle Eastern poetry realm. Tradition, yeah. yeah, yeah. Tradition. Um, so I'm creating Shurzal and kind of merging Shurku with Ghazal um, and then throwing in the numbers to the extent that a Ghazal normally is six sets 
of lines. Okay. I have two parts, if you will, one part of six, one part of seven, going back to the wordsmiths in Old English at sixes and sevens. Uh -huh. One of the originations of that was trying to make sense of chaos. And isn't that what we're trying to make sense of is the yes. chaos that's going on around us. So this is by way of introduction, this branch, part one. Cluster of kids playing around the front yard tree, taking turns, trying to climb a low branch failing to clamber successfully to the next branch. Green stems protrude tentatively from the cold brown earth. Is it spring yet? Or is this new weather inexperience a budding branch? The student theater group had set times within which to set their stage to perform and then clear their set props and all to enable the judicial branch. Heated greenhouse served as the classroom for seed lessons amidst the seedlings beginning their journey into the world food branch. Completed reading the collected works of my namesake, his perception and logic astounds some to this day in awe of his prowess in the detective branch. Perhaps some of the family recipes passed down through the ages were really developed as a means of survival to make the most of the food available to that branch. Part two, I cleared a vine or two that had tangled themselves between the trees it would have caused more damage if I hadn't clipped that branch. Soccer is the beautiful game, even more beautiful when the team can move with and play within the triangles passing to the open branch. The grill flames blew out twice while cooking, the wind blustering with such force, the grill relit quickly enough heat had built under the branch. Odd how the last time we'd been to this restaurant had been for my aunt's birthday. Then we hear that she had passed. Only two sisters left of mother's branch. We should be more careful with whatever we're talking about when little ones are around. They do listen. Remarkably, they will repeat what we have said about the branch. Density and affordable housing are incompatible pairs. They are good enough for them to be elsewhere, as long as they do not get built on this branch. On this, the first day of spring, all the major papers have dire headlines. Significant action is required, or climate change will make life a real challenge on this branch. That's great, Steve. The branch. That's a good way to, to, to see its usage and multiple meanings, right? We're all on a branch here, coming from somewhere, giving birth to something else. Yeah, multiple connections. Things intersect. In many ways, they intersect nicely. 
And there is a reason to the cycle. And we've talked in prior sessions about the water cycle, the life cycle, the growth cycle. And now we're into a cycle where we need to take action or the cycle is really going to do some damage to us. So, yeah, yeah it just it, it was timely. And hence, I wrote it. And thank you and the listeners for the opportunity to share it. And again, That's as great. I mentioned, you can find it on quietpoet.com to read again at your leisure. But clearly, one of the impetus clearly was for me, the IPCC report, which was like, you know, the next in the series of kind of the slap upside the head. Hey, guess what? All these guidelines, all these goals, it doesn't matter unless we're starting to take action, because guess what? It's getting rather late. (laughs) The IPCC is one of these UN acronyms. Just to remind everybody, the IPCC is the, it stands for Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it's it's kind of this UN thing that's been around since the early 1990s, and scientists all get together, and it's very interesting. The scientists for these IPCC reports they get together and they don't they review the work of other scientists and try and synthesize all the different little papers. So they take all these sort of specific mm-hmm. little papers that cover you know, what the clams are doing on the West Coast and what the saplings are doing in Eurasia, you know, put it all together and try and, and so they end up with something called the synthesis report. And that's what got, and the synthesis report is, comes out like every five years, right? It's a quite a slow cycle in, in terms of, uh, and this last synthesis report is now, again, a synthesis, I think of like the, there were previous reports about the science of climate change, the impact of climate change, what we can do about climate change. In the past year or so, there's been a bunch of different, and they all come out and say, oh, UN says we're all, you know, everything's bad and and Mm -hmm. everybody ignores it. But I mean, this report is particularly, it's not, I mean, to me, listening, it's almost uh, not quite despairing, but I mean, the the people who do these reports are saying that, you know, there's going to be significant, significant badness Right. With certainty. Right. They're not they're not saying, oh, you know, there might be any more. It's going to be right. there. if right. we you know, there's always this conditional says if we don't do anything like there's horrendous things that would happen. Um, and they are the horrendous things that what makes it so horrendous is that the things, the bad things that would happen, even though they might happen in 2050, 2070, we are committed to them in 2030. Mm-hmm. That's the big angst, right? right. So everyone says we must, we must do stuff before 2030, and that is, it's not as if in 2031, right, the sun's going to explode or anything, right? It's just going to be the same stuff. But there's no way back. That's the point, right? If you don't do something now, there's no pulling back from you're committed. You've crossed the proverbial Rubicon, right? What's going to happen mm-hmm. is going to happen. And all the discussion is around maintaining um, a temperature. I mean, again, this is so, it, it's so, it sounds so geeky, you know, a global temperature rise of one and a half degrees. Right? And they say one and a half degrees is nothing, right? It, Sounds it varies little. by 15 degrees from day to day around here, right? But I mean, what the average is like over the course of a year, if you took a temperature measurement everywhere on earth once an hour, you know, 
over the oceans, over the North Pole, everywhere, all the time, and then put it all into a big average. Mm-hmm. Right? Moving that number, kind of number by a, a, one and a half degrees is a big deal. Right? right. Because it's, and so, and so it, point being that the scientists say that we have to cut the carbon emissions in order to keep the warming to one and a half degrees. And why is it one and, it's one and a half degrees? Because if you go past one and a half degrees, you know, many, the, the, the smaller nation states disappear, the Polynesian islands disappear, I mean, all kinds of like truly, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so one and a half degrees is this target. We're running out of time. We have to go. The report says there's, and they've been saying it for a while, near certainty that bad things will happen, but that we know what we're doing. We know, we know how to fix things. Mm-hmm. That the only thing that's missing is the, is the action. Right. And that's that's the the heartbreaking shame is that it's not like we don't know what we got to do. It's just that we are in this trance where we can't get ourselves together to take action. Um, yeah. So it is a sobering report. I mean, uh, very sobering. But yes. it, it's very sobering, but it's also in line with 10 other sobering reports that just get downplayed. Right. Just get ignored. Yeah, right? but the, the, well, in the scientists in these reports, the scientists are coming more and more. So these are scientists, guys. These are climate physicists, right? But they mm-hmm. they are inching towards this thing that says, "Yeah, capitalism, right? The way where the far profit motive is mm-hmm. sort of at the base here, right? right? You can't keep capitalism if you want. We've let things go to such an extent that you can't solve this now with." tinkering around the edges of capitalism. Mm-hmm. No, that's not no. quite what they're saying, but it's, it's yeah. really profound changes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause clearly the, the varieties and the immensities of the storms that we've been seeing just in the United States, never mind even the rest of the world, <laughs> just in the United States uh, between the, the pounding rains on the West coast, which, we managed to avoid the droughts, which effectively the California drought got wiped out in six weeks because of the amount of rain that they got. And the snow is still there in what, 80 inches in some cases in the Sierras, et cetera. That's going to take time for melting, which is all well and good, but it's the extremes that we were talking about. It's just going to happen much more frequently. There'll be that much more extreme. The people in the central part and the southern part will get the tornadoes just wiped through. Right. You see that the, 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 these extreme tornadoes, repetitive times in the last few weeks have just come through and blasted stuff. I mean, it, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's yeah. really it gets presented on TV as, uh, you know, unprecedented, you know, huge tornadoes. Yeah, and then we just move on. Years, as et cetera, if it, but the extremity is is not the extremity is the news right? yes, <laughs> the, yes. The, the fact that this is so wacko is not a thing to be cheered and marveled at because isn't nature amazing it's that there's and of course you you can't forget that our past winter here in the boston area has been we had a winter mild yeah we, we had, had a winter believe it or not <laughs> we had something called the uh the uh the the climatological winter the sun went up and set very early in the day but it wasn't Mm -hmm. really that cold well and one of the interesting budgeting aspects is while quote we didn't have a whole lot of snow 
we did have some of those in-between weather events, which were longer. So it took more salt and more manpower to salt the roads, et cetera. So it was almost as expensive as if we had had 100 inches of snow. So just people to say, think if they're thinking that, oh, we saved so much money because we didn't have a big snowstorm. No. <laughs> the nature of the events still caused the DPW and the contractors to be out there for hours and hours because it was just lingering. That's, I think, is the... You know, they make the joke about the Keanu Reeve in the Reeves in the Matrix, right? You take the red mm -hmm. pill, the blue pill, and of course, the 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 color of your pill is a big conservative meme, right? Mm -hmm. So there's lots of baggage behind it. So maybe I shouldn't even use it. But the whole concept of once you recognize that something's going on, it's hard to walk away. You start to see it in many places, right? right. You can't unthink that thing that you now know, and that's why talking about climate. I mean, even people listening to this podcast, I mean, being open, not argumentative, right? Because there's nothing to argue about anymore, right? And this stuff's happening, right? And normalizing the conversation so that people begin to realize that, yeah, there's something going on. And then it's very hard to ignore it after that, uh, if you sort of understand the implications of I don't know, you know, bugs and that are overwintering. I mean, it'd be interesting. Mm -hmm. The tick, the tick supply. So yeah, the tick supply this summer is going to be nasty. Yeah, right? all uh, all those uh, tick and uh, mosquitoes, other insects um, were not killed off during the winter, <laughs> where a deep freeze usually suppresses them. And to the extent that we do have at least enough water to create puddles. That's a breeding ground. They're 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 going to be around. So yeah, the board of health. I know I when I've talked periodically with our health director. That's one of her concerns. Whether it's Lyme disease or whatever else is out there, um, we have to be aware of those. And obviously, we can take some precautions. You know, long sleeves, uh, right, insect right. repellent, and things of that sort. But at some point in time, you know, does that mean every single time we go out the door, we're going to have to do that? <laughs> Unless we take action. <laughs> well, it, and it's, it's, it's so in parallel with this podcast, Steve, I make my own podcast. In addition right. to the pleasure of being your guest, I, uh, I make a, a separate podcast. We had the opportunity to speak with an author. An author, uh, this was just the other day, I haven't even posted the podcast, but the title of this gentleman's book was What Could Go Right? the question what could go right and That's he makes the case wrong. that yeah. you know in the face of these like you and i are talking about oh bugs and overwintering and how it's like, we, we cannot build a future unless we envision the positive thing that we want to have true right true absolutely and so once you so so it sort of flips the whole conversation from what could be a despairing kind of conversation to one that says what world do you want to build right and this, I mean, I love the, the, the thesis of the book, but he's saying we want to build a world where all human beings from Americans to across the globe are able to kind of actualize their own happiness. Mm -hmm. right? And he talked about Maslow's per, uh, hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy, yes. <laughs> pyramid, but the hierarchy, right? Is, is yeah. how do we do that? Right. Yeah. And of course, you, once you start thinking in that terms that we as humans have the capacity to do that for everybody on the planet, we could. 
right? If that's the world we wanted to build, right. right, we could go in that direction. And all of a sudden, then you start to say, okay, what are the baby steps towards that? It's a much more um, life-affirming thing because climate, climate activists can end up being scolds. Right, you say, oh, you're all going to get bitten by ticks next summer, right? Unless mm-hmm. you do something, and right. the, the average person says, okay, what do you want me to do? <laughs> right? What right. can I do? Yeah. And so the the it is an interesting discussion about, and once you start thinking, sort of free form about what kind of future would you like for your children and grandchildren in a hundred years, right? It gets to be fun, right? I mean, it's much. It, it just the, the other thing that I found fascinating before we, because there's a lot to talk about, but he, in this book, he talks about two different kinds of game theories. So game theory, everyone's heard of a zero sum game, zero sum game. Yep. Where, you know, whatever I win, you lose and vice versa. Right. There's always a balance balance. in the game. Right. Right. There are many other kinds of games you can play as well. But there's also the infinite game. The infinite game, right? So the finite game has rules in a short-term thing where somebody wins and somebody loses. It may not be zero-sum, but there's a winner. Yeah. Checkers, infinite... chess, those board games, et cetera, even card games, and, right? And corporations are playing a finite game, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to come out on top of the top of the the income, you know, make money at the end of the quarter. Right. But then he talks about the, as you said correctly, the infinite game, where in the infinite game, the point of the infinite game is to keep playing. So everything that you do within the game is to further the play of the game, right? The length in the game. That syncs up perfectly with sort of, you know, seventh generation. How do we play the game on earth so that, Mm -hmm. you know, we all continue to play the game. Right. It's just, it's a great way to a concept to carry around in the back of your head as to how we ought to be facing these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll pick back to a line in the poem because it came from soccer. We do have a local soccer team. It's a good game when it's played as the beautiful game. Triangle ball, I call it, because you really you need a couple of people and amongst the three people, you need to split into the triangles. So you split the two defenders and you're in the middle so it can pass to you and the defenders are not going to get you. If you can play that way, which is what some of the better teams in the world with one touch passing, proper uh, technique, et cetera. It's amazing. It's somewhat frustrating in the American way because then you still end up with a one or two, one goal, two goal game, as opposed to everybody likes to see the big football scores, you know, 27, 34 to 24, whatever it is, et cetera. But the infinite game, you just simply want to keep it going. Right. Keep right. it going. Make those little passes, make the little passes, make the little passes. And all of a sudden, now you're one on one with the goalie. Right. And that, now, now, now you can really make the game. Right. So, yeah, a little yeah, analogy, the, a little offside. But, <laughs> but, the, but the, the, the question of, you know, process being an important thing and, and putting more attention on the process of passing the soccer ball in the soccer game or how you're going to formulate your economics right mm-hmm. to be more concerned about how the process is going to be ongoing is so anyway that's a long roundabout way of philosophical way to to sort of set in context the whole idea that the ipcc is telling us this report that we are well and truly in trouble right yes. if we don't take action but then we have this this opportunity to create thoughtful life-affirming responses that do the right things. Mm-hmm. And of course, 
you start thinking about uh, um, Maslow's hierarchy for for people in destitute countries. Okay, you're a long way from that. So where do you start? Right. So let's wind back then to talk about Massachusetts, right? So the IPCC report um, is basically says that we already know what we need to do. We're just not doing it well enough. And there are several articles, one uh, from uh, Larry Cretion at uh, the Green Energy Consumers Alliance and an article in the WBUR talking about where does all this fit for Massachusetts and mm-hmm. New England, right? Are we yeah. doing the right, you know, what is there any message for uh, the state of Massachusetts in this IPCC report? And I think what comes back is that the goals and the intentions of what Massachusetts is trying to do are consistent with what the IPC says, IPCC report says that we must do, right? right? But similar to the report, uh, we're not doing it fast enough or hard, we're not going mm-hmm. big enough, fast yeah. enough or whatever right now, right? And so yeah. the, the, the call is to, yeah, don't pat yourself on the back because you've got great dreams, but now we have to translate them into reality. Yeah, all the goals in the world are not going to solve the problem until we take definitive action today and tomorrow and repeat it to achieve those goals. And I think that ties to one of the themes that we were talking about, particularly in terms of the roadmap. The mass roadmap is aligned with the IPCC. Our goals are aligned with it. And we now have an administration who has been making some key appointments, including a most recent one for the DPU, which had been one of our problematic left-hand, right-hand type agencies. Now things may be starting to come together. Obviously, the proof's in the pudding, but the indications are things are starting to align. Now, is it going to be quick enough? Well, we got to give them a chance to get started. They just got appointed. They're just starting, but at least there's no, I, I agree that the 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 Healy administration is showing the right kinds of intentions and appointing yeah. the right people in the right places. And you and I, maybe maybe me is my own hobby horse that I like to ride around, but I mean the alignment of all these bureaucracies to uh to the climate roadmap is not an easy thing to do and it's not gonna happen unless you consciously want to do it. So Healy, last time I think we spoke, Healy had appointed a climate, I don't want to call it a climate czar, right, but a mm-hmm. climate head who reported right. to the governor herself, yep. right, Created but the then since role. then, yep. uh, we, she appointed people to the DPU, the Department of Public Utilities, who are of the right mindset. And the, the background, so dear listener, DPU stuff is geeky, right? Everyone's mm-hmm. eyes roll back in their heads pretty quickly. But the DPU is supposed to be um, overseeing like the electric grid and the gas delivery. And the the case, the argument in the past has been that the, well, anyway, the, the DPU, it turns out, is sort of a judicial proceeding kind of thing. There are commissioners mm-hmm. who are sort of like judges and who take in information, evidence, and then they balance it and they make a decision. Uh, and the people in the past under previous administrations 
who were the commissioners making these big decisions about what would be built or what how we would go tended to be very, 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 very friendly to fossil fuel interests, interests and not right. very sympathetic to the climate issue. Um, and the new commissioners for the DPU, uh, at least one of them is explicitly an environmental justice advocate. I believe she. I believe she comes out of the Conservation Law Foundation. I, I think I recall seeing something about that. Yes, and I think her name is Stacy Rubin. But now, what what that means is that the the perspective of environmental justice is going to be included much more actively in the DPU's decisions. The DPU is going to be deciding on where we're going to put the next power plant. Right? Mm-hmm. And so and you might say that an environmental justice advocate is kind of a limited scope because, you know, not going to happen in my community, right? We're rich and powerful enough to fend off, you know, the bad guys when they want to build a peaker plant in our town, right? But the environmental justice perspective forces the whole system to be more thoughtful about what it's doing and forces the whole system towards more, more gentle methods of making the energy. So we're back to the sort of infinite game thing, right? So mm-hmm. instead of yeah. putting up another Pika plant, we're going to find the right place to put the solar panels and we're going to, underneath them, we're going to build, what is it, the bee, the, the, the flowers for the bees and the butterflies, right, right. that grow underneath the solar panels. And, and this sort of integrated approach is now at the DPU. And we only hope that, uh, that uh, these commissioners can affect the right perspectives because they have to make big decisions. And just the other thing, I mean, the thing about the Department of Public Utilities, the DPU, is that in the past they have been mandated to guarantee reliability of electricity supplies and the lowest cost. With the new climate bill, they're also mandated to worry about uh, carbon dioxide emissions. And so now there's a legal basis for making decisions that are much more attuned to the IPCC report. (laughs) Right. As opposed to continuing the fossil fuel uh, continuum, whether it's adding uh, hydrogen or whatever to the pipelines to continue the pipelines, et cetera, or in the prior DPU, they said, well, we need a report. So they asked the gas companies and oil companies to put it together and uh, left everybody else out of it. Things like that are expected not to occur, and that's where the proof's going to be in the pudding. But so far, it seems like things are lining up, and there at least is some hope. It's funny you should say mention hydrogen. My other particular bugaboo, uh, on the Climate Minute podcast, I had the opportunity to talk to two authors who directly addressed the question of using hydrogen in um, to heat your home. Right. Mm-hmm. So we've talked, we don't have to go back, but there's this long thing where the utilities have this idea that they should make hydrogen using electricity from wind turbines and then put that hydrogen into the pipeline that goes into your house. Okay. Lots and lots of bad reasons for that. We don't have to rehearse them all again. But these gentlemen make the case that in order to do that, even at sort of a minimal level, the gas utility companies would basically have to co-opt four times more wind turbines than we're planning to build in order to make the hydrogen in order to get into your pipeline. 
So, I mean, and, and that there's very good reasons for that, but it's just a non-starter. And yeah. so uh, we hope that this whole idea of using hydrogen in the, uh, to heat your home is just dies of its own weight. It's too top heavy to actually continue, but mm. no one's going to say until someone says the emperor has no clothes on, these guys are going to continue trying to push their ideas. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And then the other uh, segue from that I think we can get into is we're also finding out through creative reporting, investigative reporting, that some of the objections to changes are when you follow the money, not necessarily legitimate. There's this uh, astroturf or greening of proposals that kind of literally covers <laughs> where the money is coming from. Um, and as one who in my own role, I've liked to follow the money where, who, what is really the benefit of that? When you get some Texas oil guy fronting some, you know, friendly folks <laughs> to save the whales, it's like, really? Why is he doing that? Oh yeah. 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 It, it, there's a report in the globe. I think it came out today even, which will probably be a little while till you hear this, dear listener, but there's a report basically saying that, so the setup is this, that there is a, uh, a wind, a wind turbine farm being proposed off of Martha's Vineyard, Vineyard Wind, right? It's way out in the ocean, no one's going to see it, blah, 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 blah. So it, and it, it is like the first down payment on actually getting a significant amount of clean electricity into the state. The oil guys are in principle against wind turbines because it cuts into their business model, right? So sure. they don't want to for any reason. If you have a long memory, you can think back to what was called the Cape Wind Project, which was going to be in Cape Cod, well, let's see, I guess in Cape Cod Bay, or no, between Martha's Vineyard, and everyone was upset because they would be able to see the wind turbines. Right. Okay. Anyway, that got killed years ago because, but now that these things are offshore, they're not really a direct threat to anyone's view shed, which was the word at the time. Now these guys are saying, okay, well, the wind turbines are going to hurt the right whales. Right whales being the particular kind of whale that, that swims around off of uh, New England. Right. And of course, the right whales are legitimately threatened, right? They get run over by, by big crawlers, freighter, cargo freighters sailing across whatever. their wagon bank, right? Mm -hmm. So they're in, they're in serious risk. But there are now lawsuits claiming to protect the whales from these treacherous wind turbines. And of course, the science it doesn't support that there are any threat to that. I mean, that the whales are smart enough to swim around rocks in the ocean, right? So mm -hmm. I'm not too worried about that. Yeah. But the the money is coming from essentially the oil industry, right? Various name. It gets very murky, right? But in, so the easy thing is to say it's all coming from the Koch brothers, right? One of one of whom is now dead, right? Mm -hmm. there's a lot, but there's a lot of fossil fuel money, pro bono legal work for local quote unquote grassroots organizations that are which are, are which are now trying to stop this wind turbine farm with a lot of pearl clutching about protecting the 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 whales and it's just I mean what what can you say? 
I've seen a whale leap, but they don't leap as high as what I understand the wind blades turbines are going to be reaching. So I don't see any danger. And yeah, to your point, I think they'll just swim around them. It may actually give them a new nesting ground. They'll be safer there <laughs> because they'll have less. Clearly, the ships should also avoid them and shipping lanes, et cetera. So it should be safer for them to at least feed amongst those spaces now they're going to have these big wind turbines as opposed to you know trying to traverse a shipping lane fighting through the shipping channels etc i mean the, the, the there is the at least the possibility that these wind turbine the bases of these wind turbines right which i think are anchored in the in the ground the, mm -hmm. that's the the, the construction right. technique they're anchored in the in the water they become equivalent to a coral reef Sure. Right. Stuff starts to grow on. All of a sudden, you get yeah. fish. You get all Barnacles kinds of stuff going on. So yeah. it's a boon to people uh, and the and the environment to have this new source of uh, of verdant stuff. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, the, the, it needs a poet to describe the outrage of uh, you know having some guy in Texas decide he's going to go protect the whales and mm -hmm. make you believe that that's really what he cares about. And yeah. just be aware. Yeah, we'll have to find a whale song and translate it in the whale's voice to say what it really is going to go on. Right. Obviously, it'll take some creative license, but I think it could be done. <laughs> <laughs> That's sort of a an outrage, but it, there are flips. There are good things that I've been reading as well. One says, and this is very close to home, but one says that uh, the the mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu will have Boston adopt an aggressive building code. Yeah, the stretch code. They the just approved code. it. So, right. So so again, this is gets into, you know, vocabulary that's unclear, but long and short of it is buildings matter and how much carbon dioxide you take to heat and cool your building matters. And this stretch code building code means that new buildings or major renovations will have to be much more climate friendly. Right. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. Right? And, and, and so the, yeah, because in the grand pie chart, if you will, if I recall, it's something in the neighborhood of what, 40 to 60 percent? I've seen different numbers. Of our emissions, but... 30 percent of emissions come from what's called the built environment. Right. That is to say homes and skyscrapers and schools and fire departments. And they're all, all mostly because they're all burning up natural gas in order to keep themselves warm in the in the winter sure. right and so there you go it's uh it's a significant chunk and so that's a good thing the other interesting thing which which i let me let me just set this up as well there's a there's a book called um the ministry for the future if you haven't read it it is actually a pretty uplifting book although it starts out dark mm -hmm. but it, it is it is a sort of science fiction, not quite science fiction book, but it leads, it tells the story of how humanity could actually triumph, right? And by the end of this century, we have done the right thing, right? And so the, the, the uh, uh, Ministry for the Future is a good read. I recommend it. In the Ministry for the Future, one of the big things that they do is are they, they talk about, right? It's not a, it's a, it's a, it's a novel, right? So it's all um, fictional, but they talk about rewilding a third of the planet mm. so that, and there was an article that just popped up 
that I saw the other day talking about how rewilding is actually why it matters. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. We, we've talked before about uh, uh, getting to net zero by 2050, cutting our carbon emissions to stay at the 1.5 degree Celsius temperature rise. Mm-hmm. Right? The terrible news is that even with our best efforts, the, the models say that we have to actively remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Right. right. We have to invent technologies that are going to remove gigatons of carbon dioxide from sure. the atmosphere. It's astounding, right? Even, yeah. you know, even best case, we have to invent this new stuff. So this article is about how good natural systems are at capturing carbon. And one of the examples, since we're sort of on a whale mode here, is that whales actually capture a huge amount of carbon. And when they die, it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. And that there are huge schools out in the Pacific of what's called pelagic fishes. Mm. I think it's called pelagic. These are, and, and I, so I'm not a I'm not a marine biologist. If anybody, if I may get this wrong, but the idea is that there are these big schools of fish that live deep enough in the water that the sunshine does not get there. Yes. Right? So they're they're in a dark part of the ocean. Mm. But when the sun goes down at night, they rise up to the surface. They eat everything in sight. And then go, and then they go back down, and they poop, and all of that stuff they ate falls to the bottom of the ocean and is effectively sequestered, right? Sure. So all, and then they say, okay, the same thing goes true with bison, clumping around on the on the, the plains. The yeah. plains, they turn up the dirt, which then captures. You know, it's all good. They poop everywhere. They capture stuff. It's, it's you know, it's all very mm-hmm. um, um, natural in quotation marks, but it's very effective. Yeah. And that we could help ourselves until we invent a big machine that sucks carbon out of the air, right? Which people are working mm-hmm. on. Let's look at, and of course, part of that sort of carbon removal thing is this, what I consider a false, a false trick. You'll hear some people say, all we need to do is tra- plant a million, a billion trees, right? Because the trees capture carbon dioxide from the air and put it into the wood, right? Have, have done forever, right? It's just that you can't, you can't plant enough trees to meaningfully capture the amount of carbon that we need to we need to do, but that these rewilding techniques of allowing the natural systems to work is good. But of course, it takes a mindset, and now we're back to the infinite game kind of concept mm-hmm. to let the bison run around Wyoming, right? Right. Are we go, who's going to let that happen? And interesting. Oh, and well, they're saying that the the release of wolves. You know, to have wolves populating things changes the ecosystem in a way that's much more able to capture uh, uh, carbon dioxide. And so something as simple as a predator species, you know, apex species like a wolf has a big impact on a forest and assists the carbon capture. Yeah, that's a helpful thing. It is. And uh, harking back to our session two ago, I think it was when we had Brekeli Goodlander, our conservation agent, she was talking about uh the wetlands and kind of the mucky stuff and there was a staggering what was it 600 or 800 times carbon capture versus a tree so instead of building trees we need to build these mucky ponds <laughs> and she just put out a release earlier this week about uh vernal ponds and their importance to the cycle which is related to that topic um we had also talked i think in that session as well about there's hidden streams that culverts have buried under roads 
there was an article in the globe and i was trying to look for it while we were doing this and i should have been better prepared but there are efforts and i think it's charles river and there may be other organizations that are trying to expose those streams back to the earth right bring them up because i think it's that point that she was mentioning because their carbon capture piece is so much more effective than yo know, a tree granted a tree is good but if this can do more carbon then let's let's do more of these i mean the the uh, i seem to be on the uh the the climate minute podcast but i interviewed somebody a, a, a young man named miles howard i think is his yes name. He, and, he, did and the he wrote an article. I've, I, I've got a podcast. I'll send you the link. I mean, okay. it's fascinating about reopening up these covered rivers that yes. are like the muddy. So just dear listener, if you don't know, you know, when you drive into Boston, you're going by Fenway, you're going down Boylston Street and you take a sort of a big left. And there's this big open mush of overpasses that then dumps you onto store drive going either towards Newton or downtown. Okay. Mm-hmm. Underneath that storage, underneath that overpass is the exit of the muddy river into the Charles, right? Sure. So the muddy river comes from the Greenway, right? The Fenway, yeah. which is, as you know, if you know anything about Boston, the Fenway is a little bit, you know, inbound from there. All that water wants to flow underneath that crazy highway into the Charles. And they say, okay, let's open that up. That would be a good thing to have some sunlight on, right? So mm-hmm. it's really very cool, right? Yeah. And it goes into this whole question of, how we how do we you know build sustainably and keep the game going yeah and miles is the one who created the walking trail the, across the greenway in boston and now he's working with the city to get some official signage and stuff he's got maps and gps points and trail guides but to get some official signage really make it official I'm looking for some time to be able to take a section of the trail at a time. And that'll be a glorious thing because yeah, you get to explore a different side of the city. I mean, just in my walking around Franklin, if I go to some other neighborhood, you find things that's like, Oh, this is here. I didn't know this. <laughs> well, I mean, in, in my conversation with miles, I mean, what he, his, one of the, one of the things he was thinking about was the interface between hiking in urban yes places sure. and that in a in a warming world right mm-hmm. what how do we define nature right <laughs> how do we think about it and is if the, the, there should be places within a city that are at least green that you can walk through and it's just there's a fascinating whole dimension of the green space in a city and again now that rewinds all the way back to how do we play the 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 long game right to keep mm-hmm. keep things going it's yes. pretty cool Lots to cover, lots still to cover, but I think this is probably a good break point. Um, There are lots of other things happening related to this. So even on the open space side, open space being, you know, how, what's our master plan for Franklin? How are we going to, what are we going to grow up to be over the next 10 to 20 years? Um, Climate will have some part in that. I would expect there should be some actions there. I know I've heard through grapevine here and there there's some initiatives to try and add some climate specific goals we're already a green community we already do a bunch of things but how to put that in the master plan going forward so we can do some more that would be a good thing uh conservation commission has a whole bunch of hearings follow those there's a whole set of uh opportunities to provide input and feedback because that's the one key piece 
that dear listener, you and I and everybody listening to this, specifically in the Franklin Mass, but I'm sure there's some similar thing in other yeah, there's analogs everywhere. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. There's, there are parallels anywhere. But this is our time to say, oh, I'd like to do this. Can we do that? And put it on the list. It'll be the master plan formally will be an 18 month or thereabout process. And it'll chunk out a doc with some objectives, et cetera, et cetera. And it'll hopefully, it has indeed driven the council's actions for the last 10 years <laughs> since the last master plan was done in 2013, if I recall correctly. So, yeah, there's things. So, there are things in Franklin. And as you quite rightly point out, similar things in many towns in Massachusetts, in fact, across the country, where people can become involved in the, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's, you don't have to boil the ocean to be a climate activist, right? You yeah. can get involved with what your town is doing, often have great leverage at the local level. And believe me, that, that. Uh, and another reminder, of course, uh, if you've got any questions or comments or topics for us for future send them along. Um, we're eager, we eager to include those and explore those as we can. We certainly have a side list of things that we want to get to and we'll eventually get there. <laughs> There's just so much going on. Well, thank you again, Ted, for taking time to do this. This was My another pleasure. good session. It's always fun, Steve. Absolutely. And for the listeners, a quick reminder, we do this because Franklin matters. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. And by the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.